We've been, um, since the beginning of the year, one of our, um, kind of our 12 steps for this year that we were looking at, what are we going to do to help us kind of move forward as a church? One of them was we were going to preach through the Gospel of John this year. And so we began that back in January. We're moving forward. We hope to knock off most of John's Gospel by, we roll, by the time we roll round to December. And we're just going to finish off chapter 4 today. Now what we're looking at today is the, um, or the kind of the, the theme that will come out is the the journey of one man to faith in Christ. That's a kind of it's a journey of faith. I've been studying this passage this week, and that's the theme that comes out. And I don't know about you, if you're a Christian here, if you're a believer here, what your journey to faith was like. Can you kind of track it in your mind? And you think, well, I it began at this time in my life when I had when I was introduced to the idea of God or church or came across Christians, the Bible, these kind of things. I ended up going to this meeting meeting these people, having these questions, and I kind of, my awareness grew and grew um, through time, through friends, through a youth group, through an alpha course, through whatever, uh, meeting colleagues at work who are believers. And then there came this point where actually I know that was the point when I made a, come some kind of decision. And something happened. It was in a preach, or it was I was praying with a friend, or we were chatting over dinner, and something kind of clicked, and it went together, and I suddenly realised where I stood before God and who Jesus was and what it meant the cross meant and what it meant for me and about my sin and I made a confession of faith and I, I became a Christian and then maybe after that there was more of a journey out of that confession I, I did certain things I, I got baptised I became part of a church I, I got involved in a particular group or ministry and so forth and what we're going to look at today is this, a guy who's going on a similar kind of journey and there will be moments that we will identify with from his journey to our journey of his growing awareness of faith and the result of that. Now, just to give um, a quick recap, we're going to start at verse 43 because last week we looked at the whole front end of uh, chapter 4. What had happened there was Jesus had, was going on a journey back home from Jerusalem to Galilee where he lived. Um, and uh, we remember the, uh, the way Israel was made up. Jerusalem was in the south of the country. Judea, that area was called. Jerusalem was there. Um, that was kind of the centre where the temple was. And Jesus um, has been doing things there and a lot of John's Gospels focused on there. But Jesus lived in the north, in Galilee, where you had Nazareth, a place like Cana that are mentioned. And in the middle was Samaria. And Samaria was the not very nice area where they had the Jews looked down on the Samaritans as, as half-breeds. They were ethnically impure, ceremonially unclean. They had a funny kind of tainted religion, not like Judaism that was expressed in the temple. But Jesus travelled through Samaria to get back home to Galilee. And there he had an instant where he met a woman who had come out to take water from the well. We found out a little bit about this woman. She had a bit of a shady background that she wasn't particularly proud of. Jesus had a conversation with her, which was shocking in and of itself. A Jewish man, a rabbi, talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman. That was shocking in and of itself. And he has this conversation with her, and talking about water. And he says, Jesus, I can offer you living water. He then has a supernatural insight into her life. He says, actually, he says, get your husband. She says, I haven't got a husband. He says, no, you've had five. And the guy you're sleeping with now isn't even your husband. And she's kind of completely undone by this. And results in her putting faith in Christ. And her, then her town that she lives in also come to Jesus. And Jesus ends up staying there for a few days. And so, actually, the Samaritans, who the Jews would have looked down upon, Look, said they, these guys were not good. God couldn't possibly have anything to do with them. Suddenly have accepted Jesus, who he has accepted him as Messiah, and the town has been transformed through the testimony of this one woman. Um, and so there, God has been doing great things among uh, the Samaritans. And then we pick up the story, go to verse 33. 
Okay, so he, it says after the two days he departed from Galilee. So that's referencing right back to the verse first of the chapter. Where that's where they were sitting off, had a brief interlude. Okay, so after the two days he departed for Galilee. But Jesus himself had testified, a prophet has no honour in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen that all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he had come again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he, said, and he himself believed, and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judah to Galilee. All right, by way of an introduction, Jesus is is continuing on his journey that he started at the beginning of chapter 4 and he was coming back to his hometown, his homeland, which was where the Jews were. He'd been in Samaria with the Samaritans, which the Jews didn't deal with, um, and he was now coming back home uh, to where where he'd grown up, his hometown. And John is contrasting the the two sides here, the Samaritans, who were the ones the Jews looked down on, the ones who were hated and despised, they had welcomed Jesus as the Messiah outright, with actually very little to kind of convince them. If we remember those, that story, Jesus hasn't performed a miraculous sign, there'd been no healings, no nothing kind of glorious, like the water into wine, nothing. Jesus had just spoken to that woman, so an insight into her life, she'd responded and then through that, the whole town had been converted. And it said right at the end of verse 42, if you just look back at verse 42, it said the Samaritans proclaimed Jesus as the saviour of the world. They had seen something about this man that actually he was more than a miracle worker, more than just a teacher. He was, he was the saviour of the world. And they had seen it and they had grasped it and many, many had come to put their faith in him. And John then contrasts that with the Jews as a whole. He says that the prophet has no honour in his hometown, his homeland. And actually said, if you look at the Jewish response to Jesus, it has been sceptical at best. It says right in the beginning, in chapter 1, it says, um, when the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and it said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It said this word came to his own, this was Jesus, he came to his own, the Jewish people, but they did not receive him. God's own people, the Jews, hadn't received who Jesus was. We move on into chapter 2, and Jesus had gone to the temple. He had seen the money lenders um, in the temple and those selling the animals, trying to make a buck out of people's kind of sacrifice and devotion to God. And he had turned it all over and he had kicked them out. And he said he had performed signs there in the temple. And it said people had kind of put their faith in him based on the signs he had performed. And it says, Jesus, I'm not going to give myself to you because your faith is shallow and it's just based on the miraculous, the wow factor 
There's no trust, there's no deepness to it. He says, I'm not going to give myself over to you. We move into chapter 3, and we have Nicodemus, who comes to see Jesus, and Nicodemus recognises something about Jesus, and Nicodemus is, is educated, he's theologically astute, he is well thought of, he's a teacher, a leader of the people, he is the, the smartest that the Jews have to offer. He's their, one of their great teachers, one of their leaders, if you had a theological question or something about God, you go to Nicodemus and say, help me out, help me out with the study of the Bible, tell me about things. And he goes to Jesus and Jesus looks and says, you're one of the teachers of Israel and you don't get it. You have to be born again to come into my kingdom. You've got to be born from above. There's got to be this coming of a renewal. And Nicodemus is like, how can I be born again? Do I go back into my mum's womb now I'm fully grown? And Jesus is like, no, you don't get it. And so the Jewish people are not receiving the message of Jesus. Well, when you contrast that with the Samaritans, Jesus actually just turn up, talk to one woman, I'll give you living water. She's like, yes, I'll have it. And then all the Samaritans say, we'll have it too. So there's revival in Samaria, while in the, um, the Jewish areas, Galilee and Judea, there is nothing. There is nothing. There's just scepticism and kind of hard-heartedness on a general level. So Jesus is saying, John is pointing out that he's coming to his own people and it's still kind of not going in. But there are glimmers of hope. We've seen the disciples have put their faith and trust in Jesus and follow him, and we see one man here now who's going to do the same. So he comes back to Cana. Cana's the place where he, um, when David preached, he talked about water into wine, that whole kind of miracle there. So he's come back to that same town. So he'll be remembered for that. Oh, Jesus is back in town. Last time he was here, we had a partay. There was uh, lots and lots of really good wine. So you can imagine people be like, Jesus is back in the place. Let's go, you know, maybe he'll do something more. Maybe we'll get him to do, get a bit more wine out of him or maybe even better, do something. So there must have been a buzz about him. Um, but he's come, he's come on the back of, of everything that's happened. And if we follow the flow of John's thought as he writes this gospel, Jesus has said, he's come to earth as God and said, I'm the one, I'm the one with the direct kind of access to God. He said to his disciples, you're going to see he- um, the angels descending from heaven and earth on me. I'm the one with direct access to God. He's, done, he's turned water into wine. There's going to be new wine of the kingdom. Something new is coming. He's gone to cleanse the temple and saying, actually, I'm going to rip this temple down and rebuild it in three days, referring to his death and resurrection. So there's going to be a new temple. It's me. He said, there's going to be new birth as well, because you're going to be born again into my kingdom. And he says, there's going to be new water, this living water that he spoke to the Samaritan woman about. So all these kind of new lessons of the kingdom are coming out and he's returning to the people who should be the most ready for it, the Jews. And in the face of that, we have this man who is, who is just described as an official. What it, what it would actually mean, he's a royal official. He would have worked for Herod Antipas, who was the, the, the king, the tetrarch of that northern area of Israel um, on behalf of the Romans. So he, was the, he would have been an official working for the king. So he'd have been high up um, in his kind of his government. Um, but despite his high office and all of his power and influence, he had a son who was extremely ill. It says um, he was at the point of death. And so this son was, was right at the end kind of, of life. And it would have put the father in a really desperate situation. I have two sons at home. They're actually unwell right now. Not in the same situation. But I can't imagine what a a parent, a father, would be going through in that situation, thinking, my son is dying and it's, it's, we're at the end. Kind of, he will have exhausted all kind of avenues. Medical, I'm sure he, might, he would have prayed whether he believed in God or not, because people tend to do that when they get desperate. 
He'd have tried everything and his son is just getting worse and worse. He says, I need to find a cure. And then he must have heard about this guy Jesus has come to the area. He might have known about, well, last time he was around, he kind of performed signs and there was this story of all this wine that he, he made. And, and he's obviously a guy who can, who can do stuff. And so maybe, maybe, maybe there's a chance he can... He can, he can help me, he can help my son. And he doesn't let his position get in his way, he goes to seek Jesus out. He says he was in Capernaum, and Jesus was in Canaan. There's about 20 miles between the two. And so he would have left his dying son to go and seek Jesus, who might be the answer. Just imagine what that would have been like. He would have to have said goodbye to his son, thinking, am I going to see him again in this life? He didn't know. And, and he was going, okay, I think there might be something over there. I'm going to go and try and speak to Jesus. He hears about this miracle worker, and, and he comes to Jesus. It doesn't say, he doesn't show any kind of sign that, that he knows Jesus being the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that the Jews have been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. God's chosen way to bring salvation for his people. He doesn't show he has any knowledge of that. He's like the, um, the other Jews who kind of heard Jesus' miraculous signs and they're just quite excited about it. They heard he did stuff in Jerusalem. They know he did stuff in Cana with the wine. They just want to show. And so he's come to Jesus and he comes and he says, please heal my son. My son is well. And he just comes and makes that simple request and he hopes that Jesus has the power. You know, he's done other things. Maybe he can help me out on this one. And what we have here is a man with a need. A huge need, an all-consuming need. Probably if you asked him, what's your biggest need right now? He would say, I want my son to get well. I want my son to get better. We don't know how old his son was or anything. We just, we just know he's got a very, very ill son. And this need caused him to move. This caused need caused him to leave his dying son in Capernaum and travel all the way to Canaan. We don't know how he travelled. He might have been on foot. He might have had some kind of transport. But it still would have taken considerable amount of time to get from one place to the other. But he was motivated by this need. And it's an interesting question to think about for us and think about people we know is, if you ask people today, what's their biggest need? What would, think that, would, what would they say? What would your friends say? What would your colleagues at work say? What would your family members say? What, what was their biggest need? How would people answer that question. People might say things like, they might have a kind of a, a tangible physical need. They might think, my biggest need is I need a spouse, a husband or a wife. I don't like being single. I want to have someone I can share my life with. It might be they want children. They might think, I desperately like to have children and there's something that may be stopping that and that's a need for them. It might be something like money. I need to pay off my debt. I need to you know, clear things up. I need a financial kind of input to help me live life, keep my head above water in these difficult times. It might be something like a job out of work or the job they're in they're just not enjoying or they need something more. They want to push on with their career. They want to do something. It might be like this guy, it might be health. They're, they're sick and I need to get well. There's something that is holding me back, physical ailment that I need cleared up so I can kind of move on with life. It might be uh, a qualification or education. If I get this qualification, if I finish this sort of training program I'm on, then that means I can, I can get on to the next thing. I can get on to the next thing. What do you think people's biggest need is? They might think something that's a little bit more kind of abstract. They might say, my need I know is I just want to be happy. 
I just want that sense of happiness. I just want to be fulfilled in my life. I want to have a sense of purpose. It feels like I'm doing something, but there's no, there's no, there's no purpose. There's no direction beyond it. They might just say, I just need some contentment in my life. It feels like everything I'm doing, nothing's satisfying me. I'm not getting any peace uh, from what I'm doing. And people might answer any one of them or a myriad of different other answers to the question. But when we look at what the Bible says, the Bible is incredibly clear about what our biggest need is. The Bible only says one thing about what our need is, and our biggest need is to be right with a holy God. The Bible's really clear about our situation. It describes us as sinners describes us as objects of God's wrath under his judgment, it says. It says we are people who have rebelled against our creator, rebelled against the one who holds everything together, everything we can see and everything we can't see. He created everything and we are enemies of his and we stand under his right judgment for all the evil and wrong things we've done. And our biggest need is to be forgiven our sins and, and reconciled him, put back in right relationship with him. And the only way that can happen is through Jesus. John's outlining, outlining his gospel and it's testified throughout the entire Bible. The only way we get right with God is through Jesus. The answer is Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his offer of new life. And this official that we look at coming to Jesus right now, he's got a huge need and it's a real need and it's a, it's a kind of a relevant need. There's something we can identify with, but actually it's nowhere near his biggest need. It's nowhere near his biggest need. But the interesting thing is his need has caused him to seek, it's caused him to investigate, it's caused him to ask questions and provoke, you know, provoke you know, discussion. I need to find something out about this man because maybe there's something there. And I don't know what your journey to faith was like or where you are on that journey, but are you in that position of investigating asking questions, because that's a good place to begin. That's where faith begins. Seeking, kind of, what's going on in this situation? And that's where this man was at this point. Next thing we're going to look at, we've seen the beginnings of faith, the next one is persistent faith. Jesus, this guy comes to Jesus and says, please heal my son. Jesus' response appears less than caring, if you look at it. What does he say? 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And you're like, I asked you to heal my son. If it lets you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. And the, the you there is plural, the commentaries tell me. So Jesus isn't just talking to him, he's talking to everybody. He's talking to all the people around. He's saying, you, you, guys, you Galileans, all of you, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. You're just, you're people who are, who are focused on the kind of the spectacular, the miraculous that's what you want. That's what you want. You want to be entertained. You, you, they treat Jesus like he's a circus act. And they turn up with their popcorn and they watch and they wait for him to do something interesting and exciting. And if he does that, all well and good, they'll hang around. If he stops, they'll, they'll probably get bored and go and find something else to, to look at. They want to be entertained. They want to be thrilled. And Jesus is saying, this, this official is clearly in the same boat. He's one of them. He says, you guys, all you want is signs and wonders and, and that's not enough. Miracles might bring people to Jesus. They did. There were crowds following him all the time. But actually, that doesn't mean that they have personal faith and trust in him. And Jesus is almost kind of talking out as, 
an exasperation of almost just like, oh, come on, guys, is this, is this all it is for you? Just me doing spectacular things like I'm your pet kind of things, you know, dance, monkey, dance, you know, do something for us and we'll be entertained. But the interesting thing is the response of the official to that because you might be a bit like, oh, fine, stuff you then. You know, if that's how you're going to react to me, what does the official do? The official comes back to him and persists. The official says to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. The official is persistent. He keeps going. He doesn't give up. And this is an interesting characteristic that he is displaying here, that he's actually willing to push through, which is actually a characteristic of the Christian faith. If we read through what Jesus has said to others, what the New Testament teaches us, is there is a demand for us to continue and persist. It's not always easy. He says that, actually, it's not going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be really quite difficult and you're going to have to keep going. What did he say to his disciples? How did, he, how did, how did they begin? Jesus has that phrase. He says, come, follow me. And I imagine he kept walking. He says, you know, he's walking along the seashore, wasn't he? And they're, they're in the boats, aren't they? Fixing their nets, it says. And Jesus says, come, follow me. And so he kept going. So what do they have to do? They had to get up and they had to follow. They had to persist. We saw that even in John's Gospel. He said that to the guys, to um, was it John and uh, Peter and then Nathaniel and Philip. You come, follow me. Get up, do something. You have to be persistent. And Jesus, even in his teaching, he talks about, you know, ask, seek, knock, pursue, carry on as we read through the rest of the New Testament. Paul talks about us pressing on and pushing forward and keeping going. Use images like um, a runner running the race, keep going, don't stop, push on towards the finishing line. It's not something you just get to kind of, you know, you punch in and that's it, you can get to sit on your bottom for the rest of your life. No, it's something you've got to keep going, keep pushing forwards, keep asking questions, keep pursuing after it. Even Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow who goes to the judge for justice and the judge is is not a very good judge and he just says, oh, clear off. And the widow keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. And eventually he gives her what she asks for. He gives her justice. And Jesus uses that as a model for prayer. He says, you keep going, you don't stop. And this official has this kind of persistentness of faith. And then it moves on. What does Jesus say to him? He's persistent. He says, no, please come, heal my son. Jesus said in verse 50, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Third thing there, we have trusting faith. Jesus didn't do anything, really. He just spoke one, two, three, four, five. Five words. There was no kind of miraculous thing. There was no water and wine. There was nothing. It was just go. Your, your son's going to be okay. That's in essence what Jesus says. And it says, look how he responded. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. If my son was dying, and I went to someone and I thought, good, and they said, just go, your son's going to be fine. I almost like, want a little bit more, a little bit more than that. He's at home, he's dying, I'm going to have to travel home. I want a little bit, you know, can you come? You know, give me the drugs, whatever it is that needs to happen. But all he said to the guy was, go, your son was there. And the official took it. As faith, he trusted him. He put his faith completely and and totally in Jesus' words there, because he left. He believed him and he left, and he went back on his way. 
And, that, and it was just those words of Jesus. He marked himself as different from the rest of the crowds who were just coming to see, oh, what exciting things going to happen. Jesus spoke a few words to him and as a result, he, he trusted and he went on his way and he believed Christ and he took him at his words. And becoming a Christian is like that. It's actually, ultimately, there is an act of faith we employ where we put our faith and trust in Jesus. We, we give ourselves over to him. We actually say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be like the disciple. The call come. Jesus says, come, follow me. And we say, yes, we're going to go. We, we get up and we start moving and we start acting. And as a result of that, kind of it manifests in actions. This guy then had to go home and find his son, kind of see it, you know, see it out works. It's no good staying there with Jesus when he said... Your son's going to be fine. He needs to go home and see his son. Be his dad again. You know, not be away from him. And we, as when you become a Christian, it's the same thing. There are things that will happen that will change in your life. One of the, thi- the, one of the first things that we see in the Bible is when you become a Christian, what happens? You get baptised. That's what happens. Jesus says you believe, you get baptised. Right, let's sort that out. Let's get you baptised. We baptise people at the church here. It's a fantastic kind of thing. We can confess their faith. Yes, I want to be a Christian. Yes, I want to follow Jesus. Right, let's get baptised. Become part of God's community. You become part of the people of God and you start living that out and acting on that and then reading your Bible and just becoming all that God has called you to be. And for us to be men and women who have that trusting faith, there are going to be times when God is going to ask you to do things and you're going to just have to trust him and step out and do it. And I've, had, I've been a Christian long enough now to know I've been through some of those times. And some of them were relatively small. Some of them were relatively huge in my life and had massive implications. The most recent one with the most far-reaching implication was when God spoke to uh, me um, and said, it's time to move from where you are and to go and to leave that place. And at first, he never told us where we were going. <laughs> it was like, What? And so I had to go and talk to my boss, the church leader, and the other elders there and say, look, I feel God's called us on um, as a family. They felt that was right. He eventually said, it, I want you to come here to Sutton Coldfield, start a church, and which was just terrifying. We left a, a nice, established, large church. I had a job. You know, we had friends. Everything was good. He said, I want you to go and start a church. And he was like, okay, God, we're going to go. And if it's just us, we're going. Thankfully, God brought a small team to help us. But I remember when, we, when we, we sold our house, we resigned from our jobs, we told our friends, we told the church, we moved to Sutton Coldfield, August 2010, we rented a house, and I remember moving in and the, the van leaving, going down the road, and I remember watching it go down the road, a lovely summer's day in August, and there was me, Melanie, and a seven-month-old baby. And there was that shocking moment where I just thought, <laughs> I'll flip an echo, I hope we've done the right thing. Because it's a bit late now. It's a bit late. <laughs> like, we've sold, we've exchanged, we have nowhere, we can't go back, there's nothing to go back to. We've got no job, we just, we're here for what we've got. And there was that sense of God spoke and you, you had to trust and do. And this is the response. And God was faithful, God people brought people to us, um, people moved out, and, and the rest is history, as you'd say. But there's that element where faith has to trust and it happens at that point of conversion when you become a Christian but actually it's, it's an attitude of heart that should guide us throughout the rest of our Christian life. If it ever ceases you question what, what are you doing? Where, where you, 
Are you a Christian? If you're, if you're not in that position where you're having to actively put your faith and trust in God on a regular basis, where he's calling you to things, and you have to, have to step out, and some will be huge like that, some might be relatively small, by comparison, um, but God asks us to put our faith and trust him. And then we move on, the next part, so the fourth part, is a confirmed faith. Because look what happened to the official. He put his faith and trust in Jesus and said, fine, I'll go home, I'm going to go and see my son, you said he'll be well. And he'll either go home and find his son well, or he'll find his son dead, that were the options. And he believed Jesus and said, I'm going to go home and find my son well. And it says, as he was going down, travelling this 20-mile journey home, his servants met him on the way and told him his son was recovering. Ah, Jesus was right. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said, yesterday, 7th hour, which is 1pm, the fever left him and the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. So there's this, the faith, there's the, the, he trusted Jesus' word, but that faith has now been confirmed through what kind of, through actions. He's worked it out. Obviously, there's obviously a kind of an overnight there. Maybe the, he travelled one day, he spoke to Jesus, Jesus said, go home. He waited overnight and was travelling back the next day and he met his servants and they said it happened sort of yesterday when, you know, one o'clock and that's when I was speaking to Jesus and he started to recover. And this would have served hugely to strengthen the faith of the official because the faith was confirmed. He'd already believed because he had acted upon it. But actually, he would have confirmed. And I, I, wonder, I don't know if you've realised as a believer, have you noticed that the more you trust God, the more you follow him, the more he confirms it. The more coincidences happen. The more things work out. Oh my goodness, God said that would happen. And it, and it worked out that way. This is one of the ways that Mel, my wife Melanie always kind of refers back to for us was um, this stepping out and God confirming what he said to us was when we moved here to start the church, um, there was one child in the church and it was our son, he was seven months old. And a core of guys and girls had said, we'll come with you. And there were no other children, it was ours. And Mel felt this really acutely. He said, we've moved here, we've been faithful, God. I don't want my son to grow up and be the church kid. And not only is he the church kid, he's the, kid, he's the son of the leader of the church, which is just not, a, not an easy place to be. So we've got one kid and it's the pastor's kid. You know, and it's just Mel, just Mel could really feel it. And we both prayed about it and said, God, we don't want that to be the case. We'd love Levi to grow up and have peers, have friends in church. It's a selfish prayer, we understand that, but we just want him to have other friends around him. And, and be able to grow up, not just being that one child of that age, because we know, we know you've called us here, and we're going to do this, but we're fearful for our son, in that sense. And um, so we, we, we moved here, and we were going, okay, fine. And then after about, three, uh, about, I don't know, four weeks of actually living here, and some people have moved out, and we're expecting some more to move up, um, Matt and Phil, who are part of the church, came to us and said, we're going to come and move. And they had a little girl the same age as Levi, and we were like... We've just doubled the number of children. But they said, but we can't come for about seven or eight months until we process everything. We thought, fine, we'll hold on till then. And then we'll have two kids. And Levi will have a friend to come to church with. So that's a good thing. And then we started, we kind of moved out. And then we started, um, kind of, we're going to start meeting on a Sunday. We first, the first term was just trying to find our feet. And on the first Sunday meeting, where we met over in this tiny little community all over on the other side of town. And we kind of gathered the people who'd sort of moved up. So there's probably about eight or nine of us. We said, we're going to do it. We're going to have our first meeting. And we're in one room, and there was all of us, and I was going to preach, and, and it would just have been everyone in the room, and we thought, we'll see how this goes. It could be, you know, 
something will be out of us, it'll be really weird. We had a bunch of people turn up on that first meeting that we just thought, where have you come from? And they had kids, and they had young children, and they were the same age as, as Levi. And so we went from having one child to having like five in the room, what we weren't expecting, plus their parents. So rather than just our kind of nine or ten of us that we thought, we had like 17 or 18 of them, lots of young children, which makes preaching a challenge, by the way, when they're free range in the same room. They're, just, they're there running around, and Levi likes to come and get involved with the preaching sometimes, and he'll just come and give me something halfway through it. But we, got, we went home, and we were so thankful to God that actually you brought children to us, and he confirmed kind of for us, I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to look after you. I told you to come, and I've got your back. And since then, I don't know if you've noticed in the church, we've got kids everywhere. I think I can't, we got, have we had nine babies so far? Eight or nine, someone do the counting. Since we've started, we've had at least eight or nine babies born to us. Thank you for holding that, George. Isis over there, there's a, there's a demonstration of it. But actually, the amount of children we've got, and Levi's got so many friends now, and just, I just want to say, thank you, Lord. But actually, he confirmed it. He said to me, you go, you go, I've got your back. And so faith can be confirmed. That, that just the way God strengthens our faith. And the last one. The last one, what happened? last one, witnessing faith. What happens as a result of this? It says, uh, your son will live. And he himself believed, that's the, the official, and all his household. All his household. So this man had had an encounter with Jesus. He'd gone to him for a, a, a need. He'd obviously seen something about who Jesus was. He'd had a, a connection of faith with Jesus, who, to take him at his word and say, yes, your son will live. He comes back, he sees this word confirmed. Your son's going to be all right. And do you know what? It was at the same time you were speaking to Jesus that he got well. And he's like, wow. And he will obviously have told everyone. And it says, not only did he put his faith and trust in Jesus, his whole household did. And that, that, that word is wider than our kind of Western English. We might think of our house, household. We might think of you know, spouse, children, siblings, kind of, kind of very narrow. This would have been a much wider concept. So for him, he's been hired. He'd have had servants. He'd have had a much wider network that would have all kind of, through this, come to faith in Christ and come to connect him. And so out of this one man's encounter with Jesus, it naturally rolls on and touches others. And there is a, a witnessing faith to what he's doing. It's connecting with others. And we see this throughout John's Gospel and also into the rest of the New Testament. The first disciples, if you go back to that story we looked at in chapter 1, one disciple had an encounter with Jesus. What's the first thing they did? They went and told their friends. One of them went and told their brother. The other one went and told his friend. who became his disciple. It, 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 just, it just rippled on. The, the Samaritan woman we looked at last week. One woman at the well, kind of a, the social outcast, the bad girl of the town, the people who looked down on. She has an encounter with Jesus, totally transformed. It says the town responded the town listened and came out and accepted who Jesus was. Faith kind of it has to roll on and witness to others. And when we've had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, the natural thing to happen is for that news to spill out. It's abnormal when it doesn't. When we have good news, something happens in our lives, something exciting. You know, people get engaged, people get pregnant, have kids, you know, great things happen at work, get promotions, you know, people pass driving tests, etc. You've been through a lot of these. You tell others. People just tell it. It's just good news and it naturally spreads. Especially with kind of social media and everything now. You can 
tweet it, and the whole planet can know about it within 30 seconds. Depending on how many followers you've got, that is. But you know, they can all know about it. And Jesus is the good news. What he offers is greater than anything else, you know, multiplied by a thousand. He is just, he is the ultimate good news. He's, he's the saviour of the world, as Samaritan said. He's the one that can get you right with God. He's the only way to God. And you can connect with him and have a personal relationship with him. Be born again into his kingdom. He's the one who brings living water, he said. And with that, you'll never get thirsty. You'll always be satisfied with what he gives. And so, life-changing encounters with Jesus respond in telling others. Okay, I'm gonna, we've looked at some bits of faith there. I'm going to ask us three questions as we finish just to try and earth this and provoke us. And so if you're taking notes, you want to jot these ones down. First one. Is our faith in Jesus based on who he is or what he does for us? Is our faith in Jesus based on who he is or what he does for us? Do you approach Jesus like the official at the beginning? I have a need I need you to sort out. Do we have a tendency in our Western consumeristic kind of society to treat Jesus like the genie in the lamp? Where you rub it and out he comes and we say, right, this is what we need. We'll give you our our list. Do we treat him like the spiritual slot machine where we we put our coins in of, of prayer and Bible reading and giving and being nice and going to church and then we pull that and we said, right, now we need you to give us kind of stuff in return. Do we have that attitude? Examine your own life. Examine your own content of your own prayers. Do we just, are we just interested in Jesus almost from what he can do for us? I know, I've noticed recently, um, and I've noticed it in my own life, that I, um, when something good or goes right with me, and something, something works out the way I want it to. Something good happens, a prayer is answered, or things come to us. I might say something on the lines of, you know, God is good. God is good, or I'm, I'm blessed because of this has happened. That prayer got answered, this got sorted out. Everything worked together, our house sold, we bought the new house. Da, 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 and on they go. But here's the, here's the, rubber, the rub of that. What happens when the prayer isn't answered the way you want when the house sale falls through for the hundredth time, when the prayer isn't answered the way you want it to, when that relationship breaks down when you thought it was going to be okay, when work, the promotion you're going for at work doesn't come through and they actually have to say, we're actually going to be restructuring and your job might be on the line. Do we at that same time say, God is good. I'm so blessed. Because as we read our Bibles, they're both true in both situations. God's goodness isn't based on what he does for us. God's goodness is based on who he is. And he is good, period. Whether it's going really well and everything's kind of coming out the way we want it, or when it's going completely belly up and everything is going the way we don't want it, God is still good. And we read Ephesians, we preach through Ephesians, Ephesians 1. I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, period. That means when things aren't going well, I'm so blessed. Because that's not dependent on the situation. And our question to us today is, 
How do we approach Jesus? Do we approach him for who he is primarily or what he can do for us? Because ultimately it should be based on who he is because that is unchanging. The Bible's really clear about that. And the way I would approach this is for us is what are you doing to help you align your mind? So I know even as I prepared this, I felt the, the, the stab of conviction, how I pray, how I think. I kind of, it's very, it can be very much dependent on how life's going and how God's doing for me, what I want him to do. And actually when things aren't going well and things are tough and I'm finding a struggle, I can, I can find myself kind of a bit more um, uncertain. And so for us as people of God, we need to be reminding ourselves constantly, daily, who God is and what he does. Studying the book of John helps us. We're constantly reminded, doing it in our own times, reading it through. Who is God? What's he like? Who is he as a person? should be our focus when we come to worship on Sunday, and we're going to do it in a moment, when we put our eyes on him and we sing those words, we're actually reminding ourselves, this is who he is always. His goodness, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his holiness, his majesty, his glory, his power to hold the whole universe together, speak it into being out of nothing, is worthy of our praise. And yes, he's done wonderful things for us, which we should praise him for. But actually, even if he hadn't, he'd still be worthy of praise. Second question. Does our faith in Christ um, cause us to take him as, at his word? Does our faith in Jesus cause us to take him as his word, at his word? Like the official, he, all he said, Jesus said to him was, go, your son's going to live. And it says, he believed him and he left and he just left. He didn't drag Jesus with him. He didn't ask for, do you swear? Just, you know, do you promise on your mum's grave? No, he just left. Just off he went. Does our faith in Christ cause us to act the same way? I want to challenge you. What is God speaking to you about today? What is God speaking to you about in life? Are there things he's nudging you on, pushing you on, saying, have you thought about this? Have you dealt with that? Have you been baptised? If you haven't, talk to me. I was very clear. God's saying, time to get baptised and confirm your faith through kind of actions and say, yes, I believe it. What about the areas of financial giving? That's a big one in our society today. Where do you stand on that before God? What the Bible teaches about that? Are you going to take God at his word? What about sharing your faith, praying for others, getting involved in serving, in ministry, in the church, in life? Are there things you know God's just nudging you towards and you're like, I'm hesitant, which is natural. But actually, are you going to take him at his word and say, yeah, I will follow you, I will trust you? Because ultimately, he's trustworthy. That's one of those characteristics we can take to the bank on who he is. And the last one, does our faith cause us to tell others? Do you have a vision and an image of what God has done in your life on the cross and through his resurrection that wows you, wows you to a point where you thought, I couldn't keep this to myself. It's so life-changing, it's so big, it's so vast, it's so magnificent that what God has done, I need to, I need to be pushing into the lives of others. I need to be praying for them, I need to be loving them, I need to be telling them about what it is. Because if it isn't, I encourage you, go back to it. Go back to the Gospels, read the accounts, dwell on it, meditate it, till it grips you 
it grips you with a passion that actually what God has given me, that living water Jesus spoke about, I want others to know too and I want them to grab hold of it as well. So I'm going to share it. We're going to end now with a bit of a, a time of worship where we're going to put our, our eyes on Jesus. And I encourage you in this time, take, those, take the time to just engage. Think about what we're singing. Think about what's going on. Think about what God's done for you. Think about who he is. Think about him as God himself and focus on that. Think about the way that he saved you, what he saved you from, which is just horrific. What he saved you to, which is just magnificent. And let your hearts be stirred about that. Let your hearts be stirred and just say, God, I love you and I want to praise you. Can we do that? Amen. Stand up. Let's worship Jesus. I'm going to pray. Deji and Dave, do you want to come and get ready? The kids will come back in at some time soon. You'll notice because it will get really noisy. Even more noisy, I should say. Different kind of noise. Let's just pray. Close your eyes. Open out your hands. Lord Jesus, we want to praise you because you are just wonderful. Lord, we want to praise you because you are magnificent. Lord God, we want to praise you because you are a great God. You are high above. You are holy and you are awesome. You are the one who created everything, heavens and earth, the farthest stars, the great galaxies and the tiny cells that hold our bodies together. Lord God, you did it all and you are wonderful. You are awesome. We also want to thank you for all you've done in our life, Lord. We want to thank you for your death on the cross. We want to thank you for your resurrection. We want to thank you that you rule and reign even now over us. Lord, we want to thank you that you've called us to life with you, eternal life, and we have that to look forward to. Lord, we want to be a people who are thankful and praising you all the days of our lives. And God's people say, Amen.